Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Brian here. I am your host for this, this Canine Mind Freak episode. And today with me, I have Brian Coletti. Uh, Brian, did I say your last name right? You sure did. Excellent. So Brian has been training uh, working dogs for 30 years. His company is called Canine CS or Canine Crime Stoppers, which is a 501c3. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about your company? Sure. The, the main focus of our company is, in short, to provide police dogs to communities in need. They have to show a need or demonstrate a need financially. And if we have a dog that fits their criteria, we do that. Um, we've donated dogs literally all over the country for the last 30 years, dozens and dozens and dozens. Everything from New Mexico, Wisconsin, NYPD, um, many in my own backyard here. It's, it's, I've forgotten more dogs than I could list. Uh, we donate equipment when we have it. And locally, what I like to do with somebody like Todd over here is donate my services, donate my time, my expertise, my counseling. My phone is open 24 hours a day. It's not unusual to get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning with a training problem. Right. And just sometimes a handler uh, just needs some reassurance that, you know, that the ups and downs, the fails, the successes, they all are instructive, all of them. And sometimes you just need somebody to talk it out to, confirm what you're thinking, or maybe give you a different insight to how the dog may have been reacting to a situation. So these are the things that we provide 24 hours a day. That's awesome. Good work, Brian. I really appreciate what you're doing out there. Uh, so thank you for that. And then also, we got Todd Mona back with us. And Todd, I know we just did a podcast here maybe a month or so ago. And uh, just for those of you that didn't catch that um, podcast there, uh, where Todd and I talked about team cohesion, which today is kind of going to be a spinoff of that. But I want to reintroduce Todd. Todd has 18 years of law enforcement experience, 14 of those years as a canine handler. But Todd is also an instructor for the Connecticut Police Work Dog Association. And Todd, you're also working on getting your certificate to uh, be a trainer for, was it Ipwater or Napwater? Napwater. Napwater. Okay. How's that going? When are you, are you going for your master trainer certificate? Going for my trainer. Uh, trainer. Okay. I have more than enough hours logged, but it's a, uh, it's a hard process because you got to do a lot of traveling and a lot of it's on your own dime. And with two little kids, it's, you know, I can't really get everywhere I need to be. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, incredible organization. I'm very glad that I uh, decided to join and um, go through my second dog with them. Uh, the knowledge is incredible that the, the people that we have in the organization, um, you know, some of these guys, 35 plus years, um, you know, what, what they've seen over their careers and what they're doing now. Um, yeah, it's, uh, lucky to be a part of it. Lucky to have people like Brian, um, uh, people like you. So I appreciate that. So it's going well. Yeah, good. Okay, so as I said, topic of the discussion today is a, a spinoff of our last podcast that Todd, you and I did, Team Cohesion, but this is going to be more in reference of civilian trainers. Um, I've noticed, and, and the reason why uh, the three of us begin this talking was because I'm starting to see a lot of people spread these rumors that like police canine handlers posting on social media, don't go to that person. They've never handled a dog in as a, as a police officer. So they don't know what they're doing. 
I personally don't agree with that. I think there's certain things that I cannot relate to. My law enforcement career was shortened because of the, the really bad car accident I was in. Um, so I, I mean, I only have a year and a half, maybe two years under my belt. So I don't have a lot of experiences, but in my mind, it's, I was still a good trainer just because I didn't understand, you know, SWAT team or cause I wasn't SWAT or anything like that. Uh, I, just cause I don't understand all that to me doesn't, it didn't affect the knowledge that I had in my head. And so w one of the things that um, the three of us were discussing in the pre-interview was um, the myths and the stigma behind civilian canine trainers, but also how are we going to go about breaking down the barriers and how do we, how do we keep open-mindedness and weed through some of the bullshit that's out there? You know, it, and Todd, you brought up a really good point. You said, it's not necessarily about the person who's delivering the message. It's about the quality and the reliability of the message being sent. So it's about the knowledge, right? Absolutely. And the, and the product. And the um, product, yeah. You know, you, you can't fake the canine. You, you, you know, you, your, your dog is, is a direct result of what you put in as to what you get out. Mm -hmm. So for me, like... Brian had mentioned that at some point here is that Brian already donated, we'll let him talk about that, donated two dogs to my department. So I was already well aware of what the civilian side can bring to law enforcement because the products that he brought and I saw, I was a rookie officer and I was watching um, John Zavalek's dog, Raven, I mean, just track and bite and just do all these amazing things. And when that young as a police officer and I was young, I was only 21 when I started. So to see all this and have a dog, you know, actually, you know, it's one thing to see it in training. It's another thing to see it on the road, you know, mm -hmm. when, when the variables are all over the place and you don't know what's, what's going on. Um, so to see what they already can contribute to law enforcement, I already knew. Therefore I was very open-minded and I wanted to, to learn from, civilians right from the beginning because you can't put a price on knowledge and just because and i think we should make a uh, clear distinction here we're talking about you know civilians not police officers that have done a career in law enforcement been handlers been trainers and then retire and are still training dogs we're talking about you know outside civilians non-leo and yep. um you know maybe just sport guys so Knowing what those guys uh, do and watching their dogs um, to the level they have to perform at for competition and so forth, those dogs are, you know, spot on. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're biting and driving deep into a grip, proper grip development. And next thing you know, boom, they're off the bite and they're at the heel faster than you can say it without any, you know, just verbal verbal command. So I think seeing that at such a young age, um, I already knew the value that a civilian could bring to the table and there was no cloudiness for me. So, and, you know, I just, I, I'm glad I'm the way I am. And I had that experience prior to becoming an actual handler because I didn't let any type of civilian stigma uh, cloud my judgment when it came to as to who I trained with or what I did with who. Because right. in other organizations, they can. And I just wanted to make sure that I didn't let it do it with me. Let me ask you this real quick. 
do you think it's more like when you when I, I was talking about seeing the comments of other canine handlers saying, well, how can you rely on somebody that's never actually handled a dog in the field? I think what they're talking about, and you can correct me, Todd, if I'm wrong, but you're you're still active LEO, so I think you're going to have a better um, idea about this. But I feel like they're talking about something that's not even training related. I think what they're saying is they don't know how to handle a dog or they've never had to handle a dog under the amount of stress when you're faced with a stressful situation as I have. You can't replicate an authentic stressful situation in training. I think that's the basis of the argument, but I don't think that has anything to do with training the dog. I think that has to do with stress management amongst the human, in my opinion. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, there's no, there's no, um, there's no direct correlation there because mm -hmm. what you have to do is you have to train a dog, right? By itself, understanding everything it needs to understand, right? You have to train the human as well. And then at some point things start to come together and they start to train as one and they start to be, you know, uh, I like the, the way I describe it. It's just like a, you know, it's like a, a big ball of gum that's all over the place. It's all chewed and you got to try to mold it into a perfect circle. Mm -hmm. Then once you have it into a perfect circle, that is when you go on the road with it. And that is where I think the comments that you're seeing online, that is the only time it applies. After all this has been done, after the training has been done, after the human understands the dog and the dog understands the human, and they understand the training together, you know, and then you could apply it to the road. So I think guys might be jumping ahead of themselves if they're trying to say, you, you don't know what I have to deal with. Well, yeah, they, they don't know what you have to deal with, but you have to have all this stuff completed and be proficient before you can place that team on the road. So to that point, prior to going on the road, that's where we need to concentrate because that's where all the problems are, are occurring. It's occurring in training, it's occurring in the academy or whatnot. And then there's a gap we need to bridge, I think, all in, across the entire country is going from that academy to the road because you know there's, there's really not an FTO process. There's nobody riding with you at that point. But to have the civilian come in and assist with everything that gets done prior to going on the road you can't, it's two completely different things than what we're seeing guys, uh, you know, complain about or denounce online because you just can't view it as one. Right. Now, Brian, you've been a civilian trainer for 30 years. I'm sure you've run into these comments before. You've heard this chatter going on out there. What is your take? What are, what are your thoughts? We were talking on the pre-interview and I said, boy, I hope you can remember that. That was some really good um, insight from your perspective and your point of view. Can you share a little bit with us what, um, what you're thinking? Sure. So uh, let's back up to what your interest in dogs are. Psychology, correct? Yep. And if you think about it, what, what prompts a person to, to spit off something ignorant? Like, our dogs are real, you're just doing sport dogs. Or how could you possibly understand what we deal with? That's usually an experience, an ignorance. And obviously we all wanna think we're, we're doing something more special than somebody else. 
It's an exclusive thing, all our own. And, and that's, in a perfect world, that would be the case, but it really isn't. You're, you're complicating something that is not complicated at all. You hit the nail on the head, it's dog training. Okay, so I can, you're absolutely right, I can never replicate as much as I've tried to stoke myself up, I can't be that criminal criminal that, that is just oozing you know, anger and hostility and drugs and, and all these other things. We can do our very best to, to replicate that in training, but obviously when, when, when shit hits the fan on the street, I can't do that every time. I can try to be spontaneous, I can try to be organic and come up with ideas, but also knowing that if I push a dog too far in training before he's ready for something, that is a memory I can't unburn. So from a civilian point of view, you always have to um, kind of wrestle with, you know, trying to always stay in your lane. You know, I'd say this to, to everybody, all the cops that I've mentored and trained over the years is that I look at myself as a mechanic. You are the race driver. I'm going to hand you over the keys to this car. I'm going to show you how to drive it. And every once in a while, you're going to come back and we're going to do preventative maintenance and we're going to troubleshoot some, some, some problems here and there. But ultimately, you have to trust what I'm doing and I have to trust what you're doing. And I find that these comments are usually from cops that are really just kind of getting into it. Because if you've been around canine or dog training long enough, you start to understand that the, the real seasoned people, the people who have experience, they don't make comments like that anymore. They, they don't. They don't waste their, their, their time with it. They don't have those arguments like all of a sudden because I'm a civilian, I automatically have a sport dog. I've never in 30 years had one officer take up this challenge. And the challenge is really simple. If you think that I only produce sport dogs, take off your suit and let me send my dog on you. They don't take that challenge. They don't think your dog is real. These are just excuses to, to try to make themselves feel more exclusive. And at the end of the day, it dampens their ability to take in information. And with experience comes that openness. And that is a really good point because um, I was sharing with you guys in the beginning, uh, the social comparison process. This is mm. what we humans do. So basically we have a self-concept, a self-concept is all the ideas, thoughts, and information that we have about ourselves. And then we have reflected appraisal. It's a source of social information involving our view of how other people react to us. So keep those two in mind, self-concept and reflective appraisal. But then on the next page here, we have the social comparison process. And this is a source of social knowledge involving how we compare our reactions, our abilities, and our attributes to others. So in other words, we're constantly evaluating who we are inside by those around us. So if somebody is a dog trainer, I'm, go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt you, but what you're saying goes right into um, the problems in a hierarchical um, environment yep. that is police canine. Absolutely. Where you have levels and, and you don't step on this person's toes and you don't question this. All these sort of things play into ego and lack of ego. And I, I, what you're saying is spot on, spot on. Well, yeah, because if you think about it that way, 
if, if you take the idea that, okay, I, I want to be a dog trainer and I see these dog trainers up here that are making millions of dollars. They're very successful. They're on TV. They're this and that. That's where I want to be. Mm -hmm. Because this goes on to say that the, the um, self-evaluation process or the social evaluation process can have either a positive or a negative effect. When it has a negative effect, it's because you don't believe that you're as good as they are. Hmm. If you don't believe you're as good as they are, then what are you going to do? Well, there's a whole chapter on that. You're going to do three things. You're either going to downplay it, their success. You're hmm. going to completely trash talk them, or you're going to completely sever the relationship that you have. Yeah, that is and what you we do all the time. All the, yeah, and we all do that. Time. You hit the nail on the head too. It's all about protecting ego. Yes. So I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel like those handlers, whether you're in law enforcement or whether you're in private security, or if you're an independent contractor, I, I've seen this from all walks of the canine world, but I feel like what they're saying is I want to be this great canine handler. And because I'm, let's say, for example, I'm in law enforcement, you are not. So therefore you mm -hmm. and I don't have the same mind in law enforcement, and I need to be around people that support what I view about myself, which first, I'm a cop. Affirmation, so yeah, it's affirmation. Affirming you your, yes. your opinions. That's right. Surround yourself with, with, with things that just affirm. It happens in every political discussion these it days, does. too. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you have to understand something that's a reality. If a police officer is contacting me for advice, mentoring, to fix a problem. Why have they gotten to me? Because they're not getting the support. They either their trainer doesn't have the time to fix it, expertise to fix it, or the handler's embarrassed and wants to catch up. At any rate, though, I'm empathetic to it all, and sure. you have to be. Um, you know, it, it's your ego is only going to take you as far as you let it with dog training because there's nothing more humbling than having a dog fail next to you, you know? Right. You can certainly hide and say, well, you know, and that happens. That's all too often the case in, in, in canine law enforcement. They embarrass themselves one time that their dog didn't perform at a, at a demo or at a certification. And then that person no longer does these demos and no longer wants to be out there in the spotlight. But for me, Failure is the greatest lesson you can have to success. Right. We all fail. We all fail with canines. And if you can't learn from that failure, you're never going to evolve as a trainer. That's right. I, real quick, gentlemen, I want to share this because I think this is uh, right on topic. There's this theory called the SEM theory. That's uh, S is in Sam, E is in Edward, M is in Mary theory. And that stands for the self-evaluation maintenance theory. And it states that it's a theory explaining how the behavior of other people affect how you feel about yourself, especially when they perform some behavior that is important to your self-concept. And the analogy that they give in the book is if Jill loves math and her friend Mary scores higher on a math test and she doesn't give a shit about math, Jill, that's going to affect her self-concept. Man, Mary doesn't even care about math. She scored better than me. That violates me because this was my thing. I'm the math person. 
She's not. And she mm -hmm. just did better than me. And that's where we go in. The book says, that's where we go into those three things. In fact, I'll read it. It says to preserve the integrity and consistency of the self-concept and to maintain high self-esteem, we can try to downplay the other's achievement, put more distance between ourselves and the other so that we feel less threatened by their performance, or we try to handicap our friend. In each case, the self-subtlety adjust our perceptions, emotions, and behaviors in, in the service of enhancing self-esteem. I think that's one of the biggest things that we're battling. And I think that's why there's a lot of garbage going around about civilian trainers. Now, both of you would agree with me on this. I'm very confident. Is there civilian trainers that should not be training police canines? Yes. Yeah. But is there law enforcement canine handlers that are training canines that should not be training canines? Yeah. Yes. Shouldn't so, be in law enforcement, some of them. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. It's the interesting thing about how I got started in all this. I didn't have the greatest experiences with law enforcement before entering this dog thing. Never wanted to be a cop. Don't have any desire to be a cop. None of that. It just happened to be that the people that were Todd's mentors, his original canine unit, happened to observe me training dogs and saw the value in what I was doing and is there any way you could teach us this? That's how it all got started. Um, I didn't really have a good interaction with a cop until I went into canine because it's so humbling. So you start to meet cops, type A guys, who all of a sudden are broken and despondent. And that's what dogs will do to you. When you're, when you're doing bad dog training over and over and not getting to where you need to be, you hide, you, you, you complain, you blame, or you just keep getting beat up until you find the solution you're looking for. Right. And that's what was absolutely awesome about working with Todd and Todd's group is you're, you're taking some of these super high testosterone people, big attitudes, and you're breaking them down a little bit so their dogs can relax and learn. And then you're building them back up again as they're starting to see that the training is leading to where they want to go. And that's all it really is, is just to build them up. So you can break down those embarrassing layers of what you're talking about, hiding or being disparaging to other people and all these other things where your, your, your ego is getting ahead of you. Yeah. Todd, talk to me. What uh, you, you've seen this from different aspects. You've seen this as a boot law enforcement officer. Um, you were new, wet behind the ears. So you were fresh out of the academy and you're witnessing this stuff. But now you've got 14 years under your belt. How are you viewing what Brian's doing in comparison to some of the other um, like police canine trainers that they're already in law enforcement or they were retired as you were talking earlier. Like what, like what do you see the stigma from your point of view as an active LEO with 14 years experience? Do you see, is this like a common thing? Is this a really big deal or are we really, you know, maybe overplaying the reality of what's going on? So Brian left out one thing as to remember, he said that, you know, people go to him because they either reached a breaking point or 
you know, they're embarrassed of trying to find a solution to their problems. But people also go to Brian because they value what he has without any of those problems. So Brian, sh- or, you know, Brian shouldn't sell himself short there because not everybody goes to him for those reasons. I think a lot of people in, in my area now, uh, and I hope it's because I've opened up doors and shown people, cops being, meaning what I'm saying, cops, um, that what civilians have to offer. Um, I think a lot of people only expected cops to be around my training groups and training sessions. And then when they're like, oh, who's this, who's this, who's this? And, you know, Brian and Raul Akiabani and Sergio Nieves and some of the other guys from like Massachusetts, Connecticut area, uh, civilians, but uh, what they had to offer and how they did it. If you could have any cop come and just watch for a bike session in 10 minutes, I think it would change a lot of cops' opinions as to who is who and what is what. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I travel the country doing this, I, I tend to think that the civilian trainer is making a, um, a breakthrough. I think there's a lot more of them now. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if all their uh, training is correct. Is it, you know, is it everything we need or is it, is it, are there problems there? Is it bad training, good training, you know what it is. But for the civilian side, I feel like it's started to open up a little bit compared to years past. And I, I know I've tried to do that here in Connecticut um, because of my good experience and my department's good experience um, of working with Brian and those other guys that I mentioned. So showing others and cops, the, you know, having them open through that new door of the civilian side of things, I, I, I can certainly say for the most part in my group, everybody, um, you know, has the most, most respect for those guys and, you know, just the amount of bites they've taken and, you know, seeing things that I don't see or, you know, helping them in areas that, you know, maybe I'm not picking up on in training or whatever the case may be, or working together to get over a hurdle. And then it's like, okay, boom, problem solved on to the next one. So yeah, it's, it's important that um, certain people can open doors to civilians because what they have to offer is, you know, it's, you can't put a price on it. Yeah. As long as it's done correctly, keep that in mind. I mean, for argument's sake, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, Brian, have you actually experienced any um, anybody kind of coming against you because you're not law enforcement? Like, have you had that experience at all? I, I personally have. I've had. Um, so I'm I'm just kind of curious. Only when I first got started out, and I think I told you this a while back that I don't advertise what I do. Um, I, I don't really go out there and, and, and try to fundraise or anything like that. So a lot of people still don't really know what I do. Um, that being said, when I first got started, I, I felt like I, I really shouldn't mention anything until I have a body of work. So I wanted to put a bunch of dogs out there. I wanted, I wanted success out there. So I could go to um, 
using these dogs as my business card. If you want to understand the theory of, of how we prepare dogs for our bite style, here's the dogs and here's the massive amounts of videos. Our bite work is completely different from anything out there in the United States right now. We build MMA style dogs that can resolve just about any issue thrown at them from a decoy. But that involves, or bad guy, that involves a lot of sweat, tears, bruises, <laughs> stitches, broken bones, torn ligaments, and just destruction to our equipment. But at the end of the day, you know, that's, that's what it takes to get it done. So have right. I gotten asked before? I'm sure I have, but I don't care. Right. I, really don't. I work with who Good. I want to work with. And anybody else, if they want to question me about dog theory, let's talk. If you want to try to undo my dog training, come on out and ride on my dog. It's just that simple. Yeah. Or you can ride the train and I'll be happy to talk to you and, and show you everything I got. Yeah. Todd? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, so if we use bite work as an example, right? Um, so targeting, our big thing with me and Brian and Raul and some of the other guys was that, you know, targeting and technique. So, you know, teaching the dog to target a certain area, obviously multiple parts of the body, um, being able to skeeve a dog, have a dog, you know, turn and center up and so we can't be skeeved any further these are all things that i i have taken from civilians granted it's from the sport world i've taken little bits and pieces from each sport for example um brian's really good at french ring I, raul is incredible at french ring so you know i i could take up the tar the the centering the targeting and now leg bites right so there's an example that i've taken from French ring and imported it into my police dog. And then, you know, some things from Schutzen, some things from KMPV and PSA, right? And once you put all those things together and you have, you know, proper, proper grip and, and driving, and, you know, now we've gotten into the ground fighting with my dogs where, you know, dogs are being rolled. Uh, Callan is another incredible decoy from Connecticut. Um, he's one of the very few guys I trust decoying my dog he's incredible and you know he we like to wrap and roll and put the dog on his back and still have the dog punch in and drive and when he does that he'll flip over so all these little things that we've taken from each individual sport coming from civilians and then on the police side of it now we're really getting into ground fighting where we have to prepare ourselves for you know that ultimate bad guy who is you know high on pcp or meth and you know, he's just slamming your dog into the kitchen cabinets as a huge fight breaks out and your dog's yeah. got to learn, nope, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to punch in. I'm going to drive. Maybe this will be the drive that actually takes this guy down. Nope, it's not this one. Well, I'm going to hang on until I get another chance to regrip and drive. All these things from different sports and civilian trainers, I've taken, imported into my dogs and the dogs in my groups where I'm very, very confident that, um, you know, these dogs are not going to come off a bike. And, and, just about every, you know, undesirable situation you could put them in on their backs, upside down, carrying them. So to take all that stuff from civilians and get it into police canine, I think my guys in my group are a little, um, little hesitant at first to work with the civilians, but now fast forward five years later, uh, four years later from some of the, the dogs that have been there from the get go, 
you ask any one of them and they'll be like, oh yeah, I, I have total confidence in my dog given we have to go into that, you know, undesirable situation where it could be where all shit hits the fan. And, yeah. and that's because of the civilian side of it. You know, it's just taking it time over time, plugging it all in together and then making it work. You know, it's, uh, I was having a conversation the other day with uh, Matt Narrow. He's from the Pocono Mountain Regional Police Department. And he also is one of the owners of Blue Line Canine Training. And um, we spoke the other day and he was talking about that too, um, about going to the ground. And it seems like so many trainers and, and people are, okay, the dog bites, I'm standing, stand still, quit fighting my dog. You know, and so the dog has never had what we call the embodied cognitions or the experience of someone high on PCP or methamphetamines rolling around. They're not feeling the pain because pain receptors are shut down with certain types of narcotics. They're not feeling the pain of the dog, so they engage more in the fight. Um, Paul Ludwig is another big one who is all about the dog really staying in the fight because in, on an actual um, call that he had, his dog failed to perform and his life was in jeopardy because his dog failed. So here's two cops that are saying there's not enough trainers focusing on the ground fighting. So we are, my question to you, um, Brian is what, like these cops, they had the experiences to tell them we need to start focusing on this. What was your driving force in going more to the different types of conditioning for the extreme situations like did you just come up with that one day did you watch enough youtube videos of seeing officers getting their their butts kicked no, because the dog didn't perform like what was your what what made when you come i first up got that? started you know 30 years ago there was no youtube uh, there true. was no right. way to exchange ideas it was usually a problem triggered a thought process oh man my dog didn't engage on this um all right well is your dog you know, is this a problem where your dog just got confused? You have to go back and, and, and try to fix things. But here's where people who are well-versed in sport world decoying, right? We tend to uh, be fanatical, precision, perfection. We want a million reps. We look at something, uh, a, a dog as a two-year, three-year project. And we have to wrap our heads around the fact that Todd and his group have 16 weeks. Holy shit. I'm not used to that. It's totally counterintuitive uh, to how I think. I want to work on multiple reps of very predictable outcomes so we can get reliable behaviors. That's what it's all about, right? Is a reliable behavior. The more things you start to throw into that, once the dog has a reliable behavior, now you can start to integrate stress. And that was always... Once I got into that mindset that the dogs and the handlers need stress, but they need it in almost like a lab setting, that we know how to, how to pour it on and take it off. It's like that throttle. And that's where having an experienced decoy is so important because they know when to put the pressure on, then when to bail the dog out when the handler doesn't recognize that he's starting to slip a little. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's interesting in the fact that not everybody is on the same page with, with what we're talking about, but everybody seems to understand that the dog does get successful when he learns these battling techniques and he learns to power through them. 
And again, like I was saying, you know, you go to these police dog trainings, you have to stop everybody from doing what they're most comfortable with. So you'll go to a police dog training and everybody wants to do a flea attack because they have a Malinois that drives down the field 35 miles an hour and just crushes a decoy. That's fantastic. We love to do that. We know the dog's great at that. Let's train something the dog hasn't seen. So that's what, when I talk to Todd about the nights that I'll come out, that's always in the back of my head. I want to do something the dog hasn't seen yet. Yeah. See how they react. We'll see how their handler reacts. And a lot of times, whatever scenario-based thing we're doing, I prefer to break it down into tiny steps. Like if we're doing a carjacking where we're going to send a dog into a car door with somebody not getting out of the vehicle, don't just roll up and send the dog expecting the dog to figure this thing out on his own. So we start at a very short send, right at the door, three feet away from the bad guy. So he understands, oh, I can bite this guy sitting in here. Then you back away 15 feet. Then you get all the way back behind the protection of your own vehicle. The dog understands what's expected of him. So you can throw all these battle things out to the dog, but you're not being fair to the dog if you don't build it properly. And that's right. kind of where, where sport people are very geared to that mentality of building steps and little little blocks, you know? Yep. Todd? Yeah, I second that. That's another big thing. So because we're pressed for time with academies and we got to do things. So like my academies were 12 weeks, the ones that I that I put on. 12 weeks is a very short amount of time. In, in the grand scheme of things. And those are, those are green dogs. I mean, when I say green, they were, those are, you know, shoots and flunkies that came over from Europe. Um, they knew how to bite. They knew had basic track and basic obedience, but, um, you know, it's a lot to get done in a small amount of time. And I think police tend to believe that the dogs are just going to do it. And then bad behaviors are instilled and the civilian guys have all the time in the world to work on their dogs. You know, some of them are raising them from puppies and they're doing everything uh classical conditioning operating you know everything's done correctly it's done slow and incrementally so therefore the dog learns properly and that's another thing that when the civilian side of it comes in i think things are a little bit more cautious they they're a little bit more cautious and they tend to treat the dogs um a little bit more like a child whereas a cop tends to expect more right out of the gate because they're, they, uh, a canine handler always pictures the finished product of another dog in, in their department or another department, and they don't see all the work that was put into it prior to that. Civilian side see all that because civilians go, man, I've been doing everything right with this dog for eight months. I don't think he's going to take me to a title in whatever sport I do. He's the 30th dog I raised. I'm going to sell him. Like they know and they're doing everything right. And there's a dog that eight, that's eight months old where they're like, oh, I'm going to sell them. So they're very, uh, very careful, very fine tuned in what they're doing. And therefore I trust it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I trust it a lot and doing things slowly, correctly. The dog has now a million sight pictures of how it's, how it can occur and how it may occur. Therefore, he's almost able to problem solve on the fly on his own by the time you get a finished product because he's seen it several different ways, not just one way and had a bad experience and then was pulled off the field because there's another dog waiting in line to go to get his thing. Mm-hmm. So that's another uh, added benefit, I, in my opinion, when it comes to uh, working with the civilians. It's just, you know, that, reps, more reps. That is a really good point. And not to mention, I think I feel like a good civilian canine trainer has to work harder 
to earn the trust. And, and, and again, you hit the nail on the head, Todd, in the very beginning of this podcast. The proof is in the performance of the dog. It's not what you say. It's what you can see based on the performance of the dog. What civilian trainer wants to advertise that they train police dogs, but yet the dogs are crap? Right. <laughs> it's, it's, you're not going to be in business for long. You're going to get run out because nobody's going to want to come to you. So if you're still in business after 30 years, Brian, congratulations, because the proof, the, the proof was in the pudding. But I also wonder, go ahead, Brian. No, go right ahead. Oh, I, I also wonder, it, it's, it's almost like kind of what we're experiencing with the riots. The words of a couple influential people create this whole hysteria and other people who refuse to uh, look into evidence and facts on their own. It's easier just to frivolously believe somebody that may or may not be accurate, but they, they, they're really fun people. Like I connect with that person. So whatever they say, I'm just going to believe it. I wonder if we're mm. not seeing that with this stigma of civilian canine trainers. Um, and I, I feel like that maybe who knows how long ago somebody had a bad civilian trainer. There's bad apples in every discipline, no matter what it is. And mm -hmm. I feel like they're like, well, that's because they don't know how we law enforcement operate. And then that word spread within the training group. And next thing you know, you got, it's the whole telephone game. Civilian mm -hmm. trainers suck. Well, Todd, you were going to say something? Yeah, that, that's actually twofold. It goes, it goes with both law enforcement and civilian trainers because you get the guys that, you know, they're afraid to do the exposure thing where they're like, okay, wow, look at this group's dog or look at this trainer's dog or this civilian trainer's dog. And then look at our groups. So what do they do? They retract themselves away. They don't even want to go or associate to anything like that, uh, any type of training that's put on because now they're going to expose their weaknesses. Right. And how could, they, how could a cop expose his weakness to a civilian trainer? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. There, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of sad because those guys have to rely on those dogs in the real world. Yes. You know, I mean, my big thing is get exposed to as much as you, you, you can. I mean, uh, like you were saying, Matt, Matt Nero, he, he's, he sleeved my dog a couple times at a, at a couple of uh, Napa Wada conferences. And like, uh, you know, he was kind of the one that turned me on to the ground fighting uh, to, to a new level. Um, and now I, I've even taken it a little bit further with the whole just being on your back almost the entire time, the dog being on his back the entire time. And the right. handler lying there passive on the ground, like handler's dead, you know, until backup can arrive. And, you know, so we're kind of going to the, the full extreme possible worst case scenario that a, a canine can be put in. But guess what? I've reached that. My, my dogs in my group have reached that. And it started with a civilian. It tapped into more law enforcement. And now Callan, another civilian decoy that I train with, knows what I need knows where I want to end up. So here we are, civilian, law enforcement, civilian, law enforcement. It, you have to work together because yep. if not, you're not going to get through these things. We all have little bits that we can offer and, and bring to the table, and, and, and that's what you have to do. Yeah. Brian? Well, I was going to say, that particular scenario that, that Todd's describing, uh, ground fighting, where a decoy is just prone, acting like – 
like they're dead or something to that effect. Um, that takes a hell of a lot more skill than, than, than anybody can imagine attaching to it. Because you can do a lot of damage to a dog if you convince the dog that he's not affecting you in any way. In fact, I have a technique when I work with um, handler aggressive dogs, dogs with, that want to do me harm. And literally their last chance of survival is me. I'll have the dog actually bite me on a sleeve and I'll grab his leash and I don't react. I don't wait. I mean, I, I wait, wait him out. I don't show any emotions. I just look and I'm looking at the dog. Eventually the dog knows in his head, nothing I'm doing right now is hurting this person. So eventually he comes off the bite and I will have a perfect respectful dog at my side. He's tried everything he could do and it didn't work. I did not get hurt. I didn't react. I didn't go, oh, I didn't do all the things that we do to build up a dog on a bike. So what Todd is describing, what Kellen does and what we do when we're teaching ground games to dogs, that there's a fine line between acting dead and being passive to empowering the dog. You have to know what you're doing. That experience is huge. And, you know, if you have a... <laughs> It, to me, it doesn't matter if you're a cop or a civilian. If you're a good decoy, we need you. Yeah. And interesting that you brought that up um, because one of the things that I teach in my dog psychology class is uh, a dog's ability to solve problems. Now, according to the Department of Psychology at the University of Florida, dogs solve problems like humans and higher primates. So what you just said is you're creating a problem for the dog and when they fail at everything that they think is gonna work, they just quit. Don't we do the same thing? Absolutely. So we, what dogs do, according to the science that we've known for a long time, dogs come up with a mental checklist. Hey, here's my problem, I'm gonna do this. They yep. come up with an idea. If it fails, they cross it off and they try something else. Now, they're not as smart as we are, so their list is a lot shorter, Right. And eventually, if nothing works, then they give up. This is what we call the dog shutting down. And it, right. it means that they ran out of options. And that is our job as trainers is to point the dog in the right direction that, hey, I want you to try some things on your own because mm -hmm. we want the dog to try to problem solve on their own. That's an exercise that we do. It helps with uh, having smarter, more cognitive type dogs. But then yep. as they're failing, then we slowly guide them. We manipulate the situation so that they make the right choice and then they get successful. I think that's where a lot of civilians and even police or uh, prior law enforcement or even active law enforcement trainers fail is they're not guiding the dog properly to make the decision that you want them to make. Instead, I think of too many trainers try to just do it for the dog and they make it too easy, and the dog's like, yeah, that's not really fun. But there's also um, unreal expectations, especially yep. officers, and, and Todd can back me up on this. If you have a young dog, a dog less than a year old, six months, eight months old, and you're trying to bring that dog along to be your future um, partner, a cop looks at a bad training day as it's over. We have to get a new dog. No, you have a puppy. You have a puppy. So yeah. I'm just going to make sure my, there we go. So you're going to have ups and downs. 
and you have to kind of stay the course. And, and it's funny because Todd did have a couple of bad days with his puppy. And I always, you know, we'd have these long phone calls on the way home and we're talking, no, man, Todd, just, just easy. We'll get him back into training. We'll build him back up. If I see something in a dog at a young age, then it really is just a matter of guiding him to where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to tell people that when I select a puppy for police work, the puppy will eventually tell me where they want to go in life. Yeah. I can't make him a patrol dog if he doesn't have heart. I can't make him a detection dog if he doesn't have hunt drive. I can be a good trainer and mask certain things and make them look wonderful. But at the end of the day, how does that serve me? Or how does that serve Todd? The handlers. So the dog has to tell me where they want to go. And then my game plan starts to go towards that dog. Yeah. So I get a big piece of advice for all those handlers out there raising a young dog. Don't envision when you're working with that puppy, don't look at them like a finished product. Don't expect them to do things because you see other things on the internet. Guide them, be patient. You know, if he has confidence and, 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 and you have good people around you, be patient. Don't rush. Todd? So there, there lies the difference between the cop and civilian trainer, okay? So raising Cassis as a puppy, he was on a suit about five months, six months old. I mean, we were doing suit work with him. So yep. that's, that's a lot. And we were doing frontals. So, you know, a little bit more personal for the dog, the dog you know, a little, little bit more difficult after we did some other stuff. So we had a couple bad sessions here and there. And like Brian was saying, we'd I'd be on my way home and he'd be on his way home. I'd call him, I'd tell him my problem. You know, we talk about it. Call a couple other cop trainers, let them know what was going on. I say you get rid of them. <laughs> the mentality of the cops was get rid of this dog because the pressure I was putting on him at five, six months old, it wasn't really pressure. It was, it was, it was definitely, he was a lot, we were going full bore and, you know, he was a very, very young dog, but um, the difference was I had cops wanting to quit and go take an easier route. Just go buy, just go buy one, you know, that's, you know, two years old, do this and that. And it's like, well, hold on. What I already have in this dog, obedience-wise, trapping-wise, at six months old, I mean, he was, he was ready to certify at about eight months. And it's like, you know, and, and it, this is, a, this is a, a puppy. So it's like, civilian mindset is, nope, keep building, keep working. These are just hurdles. It's, you know, the, the, the dog needs to grow. Oh, they regress, they grow, they regress, they grow. It's just like a child, you know? The kid's not always going to have a perfect game on the field, you know? He's got to learn to... Hey, maybe I didn't do so well last time. I need to come out harder or else I'm going to lose the bite or I'm going to lose the game, whatever the case is. Right. The attitude of the law enforcement canine trainers was "Eh, maybe get rid of them. I had one that said stick with it, but there's your two mindsets. Well, and the interesting thing about that. So I was writing my thesis paper for um, one of my psychology classes when I was going to Purdue. And my hypothesis was, um, Let's see. I wanted to determine whether or not the human belief system alone had more of a negative impact on dog behavior compared to a positive, right? And within that, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but while I was getting all my resources and I had to 
physically face-to-face -face interview with scientists in the field. So it was really cool because I got to talk to a lot of people about belief and how, how and why humans behave the way that they do and how dogs learn from that. But here was one of the interesting pieces of research that I came across. I don't remember who did it. I don't have it in front of me, but I wanted to know, do, do people contribute to a dog's bad behavior? And if it's true, do people feel any remorse for when they give their dog to the shelter? Like, because if the human actually caused the bad behavior, how come, do they feel any empathy at all for the dog? Like, it's not the dog's fault that they're, they're acting this way. It's because the human allowed the dog to act this way. They didn't provide no, enough rules and regulations. So do they feel bad for that? Or do they even know? And I came across this research that said this. It said that people, take, people who take their dogs to the shelter, majority of the time, the reason why they relinquish the dog with no remorse is because they had a vision in their head of what it is going to be like to have this dog. So they have an expectation. They're going to be running slowly in the wheat field as the sun's setting and the dog's going to leap into their arms and lick their face and all their stress and worries are going to be gone. And then they get the dog and the dog's chewing on the couch, pissing on the pot, potted flowers over there. And they're like, this is not what I expected it to be. And that creates a disassociation because the dog wasn't meeting the expectation of the human. Then because dog is a social animal, they're saying, well, now you're pulling further away from me. How do I get you to come back? And that only creates more of an annoyance for the person. And so there's a greater disassociation. Then the dog tries to harder. The dog problem solves. And it only provides more anger and frustration. And pretty soon they're at wit's end. And the best option, all because the dog violated the human's expectation, is to get rid of the dog. I think that's yep. part of that mentality where people are saying, hey, look, you should just get a dog. If you're a cop, this dog should just be balls to the wall already. Like you shouldn't, it's too hard to do any type of rehabilitation. I, I can't tell you how many dogs I picked up from certain agencies that had my phone number and said, Hey, we just washed this dog. Do you want them? And I'm like, heck yeah. I didn't even, I even stopped evaluating the dogs because I knew it only would take me two days to solve whatever problem they had. And I was selling these dogs to other police departments. Brian, you look like you were going to say something here. No, it's, it's a, it all makes sense to me. And you know how many times I've showed up at a conference or a workshop that we do, or even a training day, and everybody's got finished police dogs, and I've got the eight-month-old. And I'm just trying to give them experiences, right? But he's not a finished product. He doesn't have a beautiful out right now. He doesn't have a beautiful recall right now. Well, most of them do, but, um, you know, the bite work, he doesn't have all the experiences in bite work. Maybe he's showing a little hesitation on a floor, things like this. From my point of view, it's almost never unexpected. I'm going to have problems. No dog is perfect. So it's not personal. I don't go home crying about it. Um, I've washed out one dog in the last couple of years that washed out because of a, a traumatic situation. The dog ended up with PTSD with me. Sure. You'll find this interesting if you want to hear this. It takes a few seconds to tell the story. Go for it. So I coach softball, girls softball. My daughters all played. We coached all over the country, played all over the country. Now they're all adults. But I used to bring my puppies to 
our games. And I'd have an X pen right there. And all the kids would play with the puppies and they would get great socialization and learn self-control and all these other things. And one night I was taking my puppy out. He was about three months old. And I have all these kids around me and I'm standing there and I'm right by my vehicle. And out of nowhere comes this 90 pound American slash English bulldog. Just jumps on top of my puppy, doesn't bite him, but has his front legs wrapped around his neck and he's squashing him with his stomach. Just wow. completely squashing. Now my dog is screaming like it's a fire alarm going off. Kids are screaming. It's just absolute chaos everywhere. I'm sitting here. There's no collar on the dog. Dog has no collar. So obviously he broke his collar and got loose. Nobody around who is even willing to assist me with this dog. And I am kicking, punching, yelling, choking the dog out. My back is about to fail. You know, he's 90 pounds, dead weight. And every time I lift him up, he's still got my puppy clutched in his arms. And this went on for what seemed like 20 minutes, but it was really about five. Once I finally got this dog to release my puppy, my puppy ran under the car and proceeded to scream for another 20, 30 minutes. Wow. I never quite got over from that point on with my puppy, just how submissive he became to me. Sure. I mean, groveling all the time. And this was a hard puppy bred by a very good friend of mine who had bred a ton of police dogs. And I, I ended up calling her one night just out of frustration. I'm like, uh, I, I'm going to need your help. I want to send my, my puppy back to you. And I want you to tell me if you see the same things that I'm seeing. If I do any obedience with him, it, it turns into, you know, he's groveling to me. I can't stand that. I, I, it bothers me. And it's going to be, you know, an issue if I want to raise him for police work. She took him, and he became one of the most decorated Schutzen dogs in the country. Wow. At that point, years back. The dog had powerful hits, launched himself. He was brave. He was – what it took was a different handler. He associated all that fighting I was doing, all that screaming, all that beating down that I was doing on the bulldog to himself. Yep. He me with the whole thing. And it wasn't brought to my attention until she told me. Yeah. She's like, Brian, and this woman has got more experience in, in working dogs than anybody I ever know. She's bred uh, working dogs for service work as well as police search and rescue. She's been doing it for 50 years. I trust her completely. She's like, Brian, that traumatic situation, he focused it all on you. You were the verbal one. You were the one standing over everybody. You were the one lifting them up and dropping them and lifting them up and dropping them. That dog never forgot that. Right. So he always was going to be soft with you. And of course, when you're raising a police dog, having a soft dog is not going to be helpful. Right. All he needed was somebody to let him be big again. Yeah. And it was fine. Well, and two, I want to interject here because for any of our listeners, if you're questioning or you're saying, oh, that's bogus, dogs can't have post-traumatic stress. No, that's actually been studied. Um, dogs can have post-traumatic stress from traumatic events. They can. That's, that's factual. So I know there's a, I've talked to a lot of people in the last few months that are like, well, I didn't think dogs could have PTSD. And I'm like, yeah, they can. Think about mm -hmm. it. It's anything that the dog perceives to be traumatic 
if they remember it and it causes anxiety and a massive change in behavior, that's part of the criteria of having post-traumatic stress. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to make sure that uh, all our listeners know that that's a real deal. Um, you know, Todd, I have a question for you. Um, Brian, thank you for sharing that story. I think that that is a very good story that, that I do believe that there is a time and a place where you do have to wash certain dogs. I'm not opposed to that. Yeah, yeah. I I don't like to admit defeat. I don't like to quit on a dog. Right. I try to be as hot, but I can't keep spinning my wheels either. Right, right. But you know, I think that that speaks highly about your integrity. You're willing to say, okay, look, I tried and tried and tried. This ain't working. I've had to wash some dogs too. They were, it was few and far between because I'm really good at rehabilitating problems. Um, that's part of what I do in the psychological realm, but I've had to wash a couple dogs, but it wasn't for the sake of not trying. I I pulled every psychological trick in the book, used multiple tools. Um, so no, I really appreciate that story, Brian. Um, and I think that that speaks very highly of where your mindset's at with your perfectionism and you're willing to try to problem solve to the best of your ability. So I thank you for sharing that. That really, I think was, um, uh, for me, that was a very important story. But Todd, going back to one of the comments Brian was saying a while back, um, I'm sorry to go backwards so far, but I really want this answered. We may have even talked about this in the podcast that you and I did before with the team cohesion. Do you see handlers basing their ability to be a canine handler on the performance of their dog? Meaning that they are defining who they are internally and their self-worth on the performance of their dog. Does that make sense? Like if their dog fails, they take it personal. Like, oh my God, I suck. I suck as a handler. Or maybe they don't say it out loud. Maybe they're saying that in their head. Like, do you get that vibe from other handlers when their dog isn't performing per their expectations? Yes, I think, I think that crosses every handler's mind once in a while. Um, once in a while, but yes, I, I, I think they do. I think, um, I think when people have bad experiences out on the road with their dog, um, I think they, you know, it, it affects them and it, they make a direct correlation as them failing. Um, and then I've seen it the other opposite end of the spectrum where handler just wants to place blame on dog and he's got, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's a hard question to answer. I've seen, you know, different sure. ends of the spectrum and, and, um, from my experience, I always put to myself, I say, where did I, where did I go wrong on this call? Like mostly in tracking when guys get away with the, it's, and it's always an unknown, but, um, you know, I, I say that to myself. It's like, you know, I got to go back to the drawing board here and, you know, maybe I should do, uh, you know, some turns and torrential downpour rains and a, you know, four-way intersection, you know, it's just things like that. You just come into play in my mind where it's, I look to help the dog out because, you know, ultimately, you know, we, just like Brian said earlier in the podcast, we have the keys to our car, our car being the dog. And I want to make sure that my car is fine-tuned all the time, every day, every shift I go on. And if I failed him in some sort of way, I got to do my best to uh, make the improvements. 
So I guess it all depends on each person's self-worth, each handler's self-worth, each, each handler's self-perception of themselves too. Because um, ego comes into play and I think a lot of guys are quick to point fingers and some people might even say, no, it's the trainer's fault. And it's yeah. like, well, the trainer can only be there for so many hours a month. So what are you doing outside of that? You know, so it, it's a hard question to answer, but I've seen it go many different directions. I, and I think that you answered it very well, because one of the things that you said just now, you said, well, if I have a problem when I'm deploying my dog, I sit back and I wonder, what did I do wrong? And I think that that's where I think some handlers fail is they don't say, they don't evaluate themselves. This is a true partnership. If your dog is reacting to something, you should have enough knowledge and skill over time to be able to say, oh, I see what's going on here. My dog is reacting. I still need to watch the suspects over here. I got to pay attention to the vehicles, but I think I can do something to change my dog's mind in the moment. What right. could I have done differently? That to me is the appropriate, mature thing to do. That's the right mindset to have. What I'm referring to is people that say, okay, you're not meeting my expectation. This is your fault as a dog. Or like you said, this is your fault as the trainer. I shouldn't have to do this. I think the expectation of a lot of handlers is um, not all of them. There's a, let me rephrase. Cause I don't want, I don't want this to sound like a bashing session. There is a immense high number of good quality handlers that have a great mindset. But I want our listeners to be aware that this does go on where I think they're projecting in an attempt to protect ego, they're projecting their dog problems on everybody else instead of themselves. And a lot of it is because they're saying, well, I'm defining my dog's performance um, based on my idea of who I am. I thought I was a good handler and now they're proving me to be a bad handler and then they shut down. They start begin to disassociate. Then we want to blame other people. Brian, you were going to comment on that. Yeah, because I think there's a, a bigger systemic problem just above what you're talking about. Okay. And it's where, um, where my passion lies. And, and when I do canine crime stopper work with people, my whole goal is to make that handler the most independent canine person they can be. Eventually, they don't need me. They yes. don't need their trainers. They, they can problem solve. That's the goal of everything, right? But what happens in, in America especially is because that new handler doesn't know much, it's very easy to blame the failure of the dog on that handler yep. and not look at Wait a minute, we have an issue here where the certifying agency also sells the department the dog. So it's kind of a conflict of interest if you're not a very, um, how can I say, you don't have a lot of integrity and you're trying to maximize the amount of uh, profit you can make off that police department. So you, you buy 10 dogs from, from Czechoslovakia, they come in, five are outstanding, the other five we gotta find the right places for. So when those dogs start to fail, in training and they start to fail and that money is the issue well that trainer can start to easily start to blame the handlers and to me when i go to evaluate dogs i don't care what that handler has done i'm going to isolate the dog and if that dog can't defend himself he should have never been given to a handler 
Yes, so, I agree with you. Yep. It's a big, big problem. And, you know, it takes a lot of, uh, there was a, a woman in, in, in Todd's class, uh, one of the classes we helped out with, that, you know, a lot of times you want to work really hard to make a dog work. You know, you, you, you've invested a lot of time and there was no shortage of, of empathy and care and, and good intentions on this dog. But the dog just wasn't going to make it. Sure. And sometimes that's a real difficult conversation to talk to the higher ups on the administration. Yeah. Well, you know, you're afraid to have that conversation sometimes. And the dog that she's got now is spectacular. So sometimes you're only given so much genetically speaking. But when there's a lot of outside pressures from both your training group who certifies the dog, but also sold you the dog. It puts them in a spot. Well, you know, maybe the dog failed because of you. Right. It is a very difficult situation out there. It's why I have the empathy that I do for canine handlers. And one of the biggest reasons why I do canine crime stoppers. They need well, that, that outside advocate. Yeah. Yep. And, and you brought up a really good point. I, I, do I think that there is, a, there is a problem with some handlers not not distributing the blame appropriately, yes. I think there's a lot of handlers that are creating their own problems and they're too stubborn to listen to good quality advice and change their behavior and deal with the problem at hand. Like what Todd was referencing, you know, he steps back and looks, what could I do differently? But I recently have been working with a, a, a female handler who got this new dog. She's had it for, I don't know, four or five months. And the dog has one major flaw. And so I've been working with her. I gave her a training regimen. We've been seeing improvement, but now her department was questioning. Um, what do we do? Should we send the dog back? Because we have the warranty. And so they called the, the trainer where the dog came from. And the first thing the trainer said was, it's your handler's fault. They hadn't even evaluated the dog yet. There you go. They just heard the story and said, it's your fault. And I asked her, I said, has any negative thing happened around this thing that your dog is reacting to since you have had the dog? And she said, no. Well, I know my behavior. I know it very, very well. I've been studying it for almost 20 years, the psychology of behavior. And I can tell you, a dog is just not deathly afraid of something for no reason. It had to have right. the experience, like the, the story you were telling us about, about the dog and the, the, um, yeah. the cat. Yeah. It, that's what we call an embodied cognition or an experience. Mm -hmm. A dog just doesn't have fear for no reason at all, unless there is a right. deeper medical reason. Like we know, for example, dogs can be diagnosed with irrational fear disorder, mm. but that means that they're irrationally yeah. being afraid of everything, right. not just one isolated thing. So we know we could rule out irrational fear disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, that was the big problem for her and her department feels violated right? because they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. She hasn't even had the dog that long and nothing bad has happened. And they're saying it's your fault. We're not holding up on our warranty. And there's a whole other dynamic involved too. I mean, let's face it. A woman has a much more difficult time in this industry than a male does. So she has to combat that as well. It's so easy to pin the blame on her. Well, you know, she, she's just, she doesn't know what she's doing or she did something that, that has created this. No, it's, it's oftentimes dogs are bought from Europe. 
they usually have one problem or another there that they couldn't be successful there, they're sold here. Doesn't mean they're bad police dogs right. by any stretch of the imagination. Todd highlighted this earlier. Um, I know like in Holland, there are dog trainers that spend two years with a dog and they realize I can't get that perfect 440. They need that 440 score in the PH1 to qualify for the championships. If they know everything I'm doing, I'm getting a 430, I'm selling the dog starting over. It doesn't mean they're bad police dogs. It's just right. one part, one kink in the armor. But it's too easy for an American broker to bring in these, these dogs, whip them all up in high drive, make them crazy so they look impressive in videos, and then they're like, here, this is your dog. They don't even know if it fits right with this handler. Right. It's just make it work. And how easy is it for somebody who's been in the business for 25 years to say, oh, it's their fault. It's not my fault. They ruined the dog. Yeah. It's a tough problem out there. It really is. Well, and that brings up another point, um, Brian. I've lost jobs when I had my kennels because the, the, the lieutenant or the canine supervisor would call me and say, well, how many dogs do you have on hand for us to choose? And I would say um, none, because what I do, I specialize in psychology. I have a psychological evaluation that I'm going to do on your officer, and I'm going to find a dog that will fit the personality and the psychological disposition of that handler. You pick, you may not see the underlying issues because you show up, you're right. new, the dog doesn't know you, you're going to see a different behavior than what is actually there. We see this with people. Absolutely. People tell me all the time, hey, when, this is when I had my kennels. Will you go to the shelter with me and help me pick out a dog for my, my kid? No, because I'm not going to be held responsible because the dog is not behaving uh, like it normally would because it's at the shelter. This isn't home to the dog. And I, I can mm -hmm. tell you 90% of my business when I had my kennels was rehabilitation. And the reason why is because yeah. the dog was outside of its comfort zone in the kennel. You take the dog home. The dog finally says, oh, I'm not going anywhere. I've been here for six weeks. I am now comfortable. And now you see the aggression coming out. Now you see the dog urinating in places that it shouldn't. And people are like, what the hell, man? This isn't what I picked. Like the dog was so nice there. What happened? Well, it's because the dog wasn't comfortable. Right. Right. So yeah, we can see that in the, the same analogy here with going to the shelter and picking out a dog and seeing a different behavior. We could see that with dogs coming from overseas or even dogs coming from uh, a, a breeder here in the United States. And right. so I, I think that's vital. I think that's a really good point of view, Brian, is, is being able to pair the handler with a dog that matches the energy level of the person. Todd, you've seen that a thousand yeah. times. You've seen these high drive dogs with like, uh, you know, Opie Taylor, you know, the whole, I, I always envision with some of these guys, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but you know, you get those really calm guys that they remind me of the Looney Tunes stork. Remember that, that, or the vulture, he would just, duh, 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 which way did he go? Like, I don't worry about nothing guys. Like it's all good. And then you got this dog saying squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's like, holy cow, this is not a match. No, okay. yeah. it, ha it happens. And, uh, you know, it's just, it is what it is. It's canine. So, I mean, at, at some point, somebody's got to step in and, you know, help that guy out because otherwise 
you know, some of the things that we just talked about are going to happen. There's going to be finger pointing and blaming as to whose fault it is or the disassociation and not wanting to go to any other types of trainings because they feel as if they're not living up to expectations of themselves or others and, and so forth. So it's, it's just such a crazy dynamic. Um, it sure is. When you think about it. So. Well, and I think one of the things that we established in this podcast today is Brian, um, I've had the pleasure of chatting with you not only before we hit record on this podcast, but um, the pre-interview, and then I chatted with you on the phone. And I can tell you, uh, for all of you that are watching or listening, um, Brian's on the level. He knows what he's talking about. And the reason why Todd is joining us is to vouch for Brian saying, hey, I'm in law enforcement, and he's really helped me out a lot. He's not a dummy. And the whole point in this podcast is to get rid of some of the myths and the stigmas of civilian trainers. It boils down to the knowledge. And so, guys, I really appreciate you joining me today on this topic. I know that this can be a sensitive topic. Heck, I might get some backlash for this, but I don't care because I really just want truth. What is truth? Not all civilian trainers are garbage. Not all prior law enforcement trainers are garbage. Like you have your bad apples, but don't, don't believe something that may not be true. Not all civilian trainers are bad trainers. There's a lot of really good ones. Brian, you've been at this game for 30 years. You are training and providing dogs through your 501c3 for people all over the agencies, all over the country. You would not still be in business if you didn't know what the heck you were doing. Todd? I'm just going to say in conclusion, um, you know, I think I wish law enforcement would look at the big picture here. And this is probably the most important thing I could say is that, you know, you, you can go look at certain law enforcement canine trainers and, you know, depending on what they have for hours, uh, dogs they've trained, dogs they've worked themselves, the success they've had or the not so success they've had, um, that needs to be looked at when a department decides to go send a dog to be trained somewhere. Yeah. Because then you look at the other side of the table and you say, okay, here's a civilian. They've been doing it for 30 plus years. Um, whether he's a sport guy or not, I mean, look, you know, you, there's some big names out there that are sport guys that have huge kennels and stuff. And you're like, you look at some of their dogs and you're like, wow, these dogs are on point, but he's not a cop. Don't forget, sport guys have to be perfect. Like Brian said, if they're not going to get that 440, see you later. So departments, administrators need to look at what is the best option. And really, they got to ask themselves, what do we want out of our canine program? Yeah. I, want, I, I believe that departments should be looking for, you know, a social dog, number one. The dog that can perform to the highest level possible, be very proficient with gunfire, be, you know, nose work top notch, bite work has to be proper, I, you know, hidden suits, hidden sleeves, real stuff, not just sports sleeves and, you know, the garbage equipment that we shouldn't be using anymore, in my opinion. But, um, you know, we have to have all these checklists met. And if yep. those checklists are met more with a civilian trainer 
private company, whatever the case may be, then departments need to look in that direction and not just say, well, they're not a cop. And, you know, the product over here on this end of the table may not be as good, but it's, it's an LEO product. Right. So it's that, that, that's the honest question the departments need to ask themselves, because if you were to say, Hey, you got training a or training B, my next question is going to be, well, which training is better? And let me see the finished products. That's going to tell me everything. Yeah. Not, not, not whether or not they're in law enforcement or a civilian. Has, those barriers should be broken down, and that's it. And that's where you, law enforcement needs to look. Because it varies state to state. Other states, the civilian uh, trainers are, you know, incredible. And that's just the way the state is set up. Up here in New England, we're a little different. It's a little hard. A lot of town, there's a lot more smaller towns, and you get a lot more uh, departments that train for the most part compared to other parts of the country. Um, other parts of the country has the police officers and standard trainings council running their canine. Out here in the east, that's not a factor for us. Right. So depending on where you're situated, um, you know, the bottom line is you need to try to make sure your administrators and and your department looks for the best suitable option with the best product possible because otherwise bad bites are going to occur lawsuits are going to occur um you know incidents where you know maybe the you know dog uh dog just wasn't suited for that agency you know mm-hmm. you, you got to match dogs just like we just got done talking two seconds ago match dogs with a certain agency certain handler it's all gotta it's all gotta be thought about things all have to be considered prior to just getting a dog. And unfortunately, there's so many administrators that are like, oh, we want a dog for, you know, the public relations aspect. And they do, they go out and they spend some money and they get some incredible dog. And it's like, listen, this dog is probably too much for your agency, probably too much for your handler. And this type of dog is going to require this type of training if you want him to conform and meet your needs. Right. But, you know, the training you guys have used in the past, it might not be suitable. You might get a different end result and it might be more of a headache than a beneficial uh, asset to the department. Sure. So. Okay. Gentlemen, Brian, do you have anything to comment in closing? Yeah, I do. Um, And it's to the civilians out there and law enforcement. Um, You know, we've discussed all the benefits and some of the pitfalls. But again, at the end of the day, I, you, for civilians to get involved, know your role. Know that you're there to support somebody whose livelihood and ass is on the line. So you got to take it serious. You got to show up. You got to be on time. And you got to be open and, 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 and listen. Um, the, the big thing is also you can't oversell. If you don't know something, don't jump in because it's not your dog. It's not your certification. These dogs need to perform. So again, you know, I always tell people when you're meeting other dog people, other dog trainers, be humble. Act like you don't know anything. You had Justin Rickney on a few times. Um, I've known Justin for a while. I actually trained with him about 30 years ago when he was in Connecticut. So recently I went to one of his uh, e-collar workshops 
And I act like I've never trained a dog before in my life. That is exactly how I act. When I meet guys like Nick Hodgson up in New Hampshire, same thing. Mm -hmm. Great new trainer that's just kind of popped on the scene. I've watched all his videos. The guys up in Albany area, Ken Stern, Chris Jones, um, Ed Myers, a bunch of these guys. They're innovative people because they're open to ideas. And again, you know, it's a very humbling thing. When you're a civilian, you get asked to, to step up and, and assist. Be quiet, be respectful, and don't overdo things. I think that's great advice. And that's something that I had to learn how to do. I'm a jarhead, so like, I just want to like get in there. I'm very high energy. And you know, the older I get, you know, I'm in my mid forties now, I've learned to just sit back and listen. And it's taken my knowledge to a whole new level. And that's, I think the reason why this, my podcast exists is because I want people to realize the truth. And the truth is that we're all just trying to do the best we can. Most people that are in the dog business, they, their heart's really in the right place. So have a little respect, relax, have fun. We're supposed to be family. We're in the canine family. Why can't, we don't have to always agree. We don't have to always see eye to eye, but why can't we give each other a little bit of love and respect? So Todd, Brian, this has been a pleasure for me. This has been a great conversation. I'm really thankful for the two of you. I appreciate your perspective, the insight and the advice that you've given our, our uh, viewers and our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. So yeah, appreciate you. So um, just to give everybody a quick heads up, I do have another interview coming up later this week. I'll be posting uh, this podcast this week. Um, and if you're listening to it, well, that means I actually followed through. Um, but then I have uh, Neil Fuser from Pendulum Canine Services. We're going to be talking about some decoy tactics. We do have Matt Nero coming up. We haven't really got a date yet. He's from uh, Blue Line Canine Training. We're going to be talking about um, ground fighting tactics and a few other training things. And Tank Mosley, um, I reached out to him. I'm going to be interviewing him. He is the owner and founder of Off Leash Canine Training in Winchester, and he also runs the Treadmill Talks podcast. So I'm going to be talking to uh, Tank about some other dog-related issues. I don't think we have a topic yet, but I just kind of wanted to give everybody a little heads up as to what we got coming up. Um, I'm forward. finished with my canine psychology course for canine FTO, which means I'm back to doing regular podcasts. So we've got a bunch scheduled. I'm really excited. So until next time, stay safe, watch your six, and as always, simplify. Okay, uh, real quick, I know we already said our goodbyes, but Brian, we started chatting. What did you just tell me? Could you tell our audience here? Well, sure. Um, I do have a, a one-and-a-half-year-old Belgian Malinois, very social, very sweet, um, patrol-type dog. He, he hunts okay. It's not the balls-to-the-wall type of hunting dog. Um, patrol dog mostly, but we're going to be putting them up for uh, a donation shortly. So if there is a department in the Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut area that is in need, just reach out to me at, at Canine Crime Stoppers, info at caninecs.org. And I'll make sure I put that information in the description. Okay. I got tons of videos. We catalog all our dogs. So if you ever wanted to go back to see some of his training and say, oh, how did you work the out? How did you work the recall? Everything is cataloged on our dogs from eight weeks old till donation. 
Nice. Excellent. So yeah, if you have a department, if you know anybody in need in the New England area, specifically Rhode Island, Southern Connecticut, New England, yeah. Southern New England. Yep. Yep. So reach out to um, Brian over at uh, K9CS and uh, one more time on that email. Info at K9CS.org. There you go. So reach out. There's a dog there available and ready to go. Brian, thank you. Indeed. Thank you.